This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, even if I don't sign like that. And with me today is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Uh, folks, my voice has not made a return. I've got an APB out on it. If anybody sees my voice anywhere out there, if you would call the authorities and say, a missing voice needs to be returned to its owner. Uh, but other than that, it doesn't hurt. I'm not, it doesn't hurt when I talk. It, it doesn't seem to be getting any worse. So I'm here because I've got some kind of a voice, you know, uh, but it's not, it's not the one I had before, that's for sure. Um, you know, I'm I've glad had, you're here. Yeah, I've had a few people, Sam, text me and email me to ask for some details about what's going on. Because they keep hearing things that that make them feel like it's something worse than what was known originally. Um, And I'm just going to say this. I should have answers on some things very soon. And the answer could be, God has done a miracle, and I'm fine. And the answers could also be that, yes, it is worse than anything you've been told. I would prefer not to speculate, you know. In front of in an open mic in front of everybody, I, I'm not being shy about it. When we have confirmation from the tests I've been taking, I will share with you all because I I covet your prayers. Um, I will tell you what's going on. But uh, if you ask me, I'm just going to say I really don't know just yet. I could talk about all these symptoms, but I've taken lots of tests to try to find out what it is. Um, so just be patient, and when when I know. Uh, I'll I'll be happy to tell you. So, uh, for just people, they're very kind, Sam. They're, you know, they're they're worried about me. They want to pray for me, but they kind of want to know what's going on, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just think that it would be wrong of me to speculate. Mm-hmm. You know, I I totally understand that. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, you know more. The staff knows more. I've communicated with friends that are that are at church. Um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not worried about you guys knowing that we still don't know what it could be, what it might not be. Um, but to say it publicly on something that's going up on an archive, I would rather not say, "Well, I think it's dumb," and then have that have to sit around forever yeah. when it turned out to be something less. Yeah, I agree. I think that's I think that's wise, but it also is. An appeal to continue praying in yes. either direction. You yes. know, it does need the intervention of God and His care, and you know all the the anxieties that come along with not knowing things. And regardless yes. of which way, you know, God chooses to to turn this. You know, prayer is always helpful and appreciated. Yes, it is. It's the you know, and people ask me, can they do anything for me? Do we need meals? Uh, you know, what do we need? And the answer to that is, no, we're fine. Um, my wife and I are empty nesters. Uh, you know, we do okay. with take, You know, she takes care of me, and it's been fine. And um, I, have, I have top-notch insurance that's covering medical expenses, and we have enough money to buy anything that we need on top of that. So um, I'm not blowing you guys off when I say what I really need is prayer. That's the thing I want. I, I covet your prayers. Just pray and say and ask God to be merciful to me. That when we get through all the tests, that, that it is something that it, he's been merciful to me and that I'll be around for a long time to continue to annoy you all with the podcast. So <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I want. Um, and then when we know more, I'll be happy to tell you more. Yeah, and I've, I just want to give a... I'm going to give a personal update as well. Okay. Sure. Um, 40 months ago, my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer and already had been too weak to do sustained chemotherapy treatments. 
and the oncologist told us to take her on a farewell tour to see all of her family members up in Louisville, Kentucky, which we did. And three and a half years later, um, my mom passed away this week. And, you know, she had been on hospice care for 10 months and, you know, was getting to the point where she was more becoming a shell of her former self and had lost a lot of her abilities. And it was a sweet moment, actually, where she was in a bed. She got to die exactly the way she wanted to, in her bed, in her home, completely peacefully. And her favorite hymn, which was In the Garden, actually came on the radio, um, and she opened her eyes and breathed her last as that hymn came on, which mm-hmm. now is quickly among my favorite hymns. And it was just a really sweet time. You know, my brothers and my dad were together. And, you know, they've been they've been married for 56 years together. So this is rather shocking to him. But it's been a really sweet season this week with them. I came up here to do the podcast and I'm turning back around to to go back to be with him again. Um, But God has been like just unbelievably good and merciful in the midst of all this. And, you know, been combing through old photos and videos and just remembering what an incredible mom and person she was an incredible wife and um, just feeling exceptionally fortunate that God gave me the mom that I had. And uh, for all those that have been praying for all this time with my mom's battle with lung cancer, I'm I'm really grateful. And, you know, I've seen God's hand move in all this, even though it's been hard. It's been pretty sweet and beautiful, too. So I, thank you. I uh, I know it's been hard for you. I I just want to say this about how you've been with your mom through these times, is that from you I have seen how to be a son and a caretaker and a minister all in one. Hmm. I have been, I've been really impressed with what you've done. And this is not to, to hold up, Sam. I know you've done this because God has prompted you to do these things. I know you've done this because you love your mom and because you admire your mom. I know all the reasons you've done them, and they're all good reasons. But I look at that because I've got things going on with my own elderly parents. And I think, hmm. you know, it is possible. It is possible. Um, my, uh, I just, I'm just so glad that it was, that it was peaceful like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this is just, again, this is just a markism. But I always believe when something like that happens— when they suddenly open their eyes to that favorite hymn and breathe mm-hmm. their last, I always believe the last thing they see is heaven. It's like, I, oh, I, I think, think that's so why too. they open their eyes. Because there's they are That's why they open their eyes because they're able to see through the veil. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, Oh, what joy, <laughs> what majesty you see. And I'm so glad that that's the last thing that that I believe that she got to see. So yeah. yeah, you know, and it's good. My mom, she was able to say everything she wanted to say to each of her boys and her husband. She she lost her ability to talk for the last two weeks of her life, but prior to that, you know, everybody had time with her to tell her that we loved her and how grateful we were. And she responded by letting us know how proud she is of each of us and. You know, that's such an incredibly kind gift that I'm so grateful for on this side of her passing that I have, you know. And, you know, when she lost the ability to talk, I was able to to anoint her with oil. It was one of my favorite memories of this whole battle was being able to anoint her with oil, as Scripture calls us to, and to read Psalm 23 with her. And my dad and I, <laughs> you know, we're both getting blubbery having a hard time even getting it out because it's such a beautiful psalm and then just looking at her overwhelmed in her face unable to speak but man she spoke volumes in that moment of just gratitude and and feeling safe and loved even in that moment it was it's it's god has been really good to us through something that's really hard yeah well um you know we will continue to keep you and your family in prayer uh there will be some grieving uh, although not as the world grieves. Right. Amen. What a blessing that is. That, you know, yes, we grieve, but not as others. Not as those that have no hope, is what Paul wrote. Um, hmm. So you have hope. Uh, 
and and your grief is real, but it's not the same as those who feel hopeless. Mm-hmm. So, it would be hard to do this without knowing Jesus. Yes, and His kindness and goodness. Yeah, and knowing that your mom knew him and was ready to to go to him also. Um, One of the cool stories, and I know we're already pushing this episode, (laughs) you know, pretty long, but one of my, one of the things that they give you with the hospice literature is they tell you, you know, as you're approaching the last week or two, that it's very common that you will see people talking to others who are not in the room with them and that they're, you know, seemingly delusional or, you know, something like that. And I was, had that kind of an experience with my mom, and this is after she had lost the ability to speak. We think she had some kind of a mild stroke near the end, and she was no longer able to talk clearly. And, you know, I was watching her, and she was sleeping. And as she was sleeping, she just went into this biggest smile, and she was speaking, but it was the kind of gibberish talk that was after she lost the ability to talk. But she was talking to somebody, and she was really happy about it. And I was just watching her, you know, wishing that I could understand what she was saying. But when she came out of the sleep, she opened her eyes and looked at me, and it was one of three things that she said that was coherent. And she just looked at me and said, you're going to heaven. And I was like, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, you too, I'll see you there. (laughs) But what what that told me was whatever she was dreaming or seeing or whoever she was talking to, her mind – was on heaven, yeah. and she had the biggest smile on her face, and that was you know a week and a half to two weeks before she died. And you know the amount, the peace that God gives. It's not just that He takes her to heaven and I get to see her again, but just the peace of walking toward the unknown, and you know the grief of having to say goodbye to those you love and wondering what what's going to come. You know, it it really in that moment God's grace met her even when she lost her abilities. And put a smile on her face. And I thought, God, you are so kind. You were just so kind. And he is. That's very true. So anyway, now we have to try to talk about the end times. (laughs) 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 Oh, goodness. Mark chapter 13 is an interesting one. Mm -hmm. Um, At the beginning of Mark chapter 13, um, and maybe we're just going to be able to talk through it and not read through it. I don't know. We've used up a lot of time, but I've, I've enjoyed it. I've, I've felt like, mm-hmm. I have felt like um, that it's good for people to understand what, how in their personal lives, their, their leaders at church, pastors and elders, how is it that we walk with Christ? What, how is it that we experience these things in our lives on a daily basis and how real it is to us and that this isn't just something we come to church on Sunday morning and talk about, but rather this is the grace of God in our life every day. And I just think it's good. I think it's good for us to have those kind of, of uh, you know, very clear conversations and, and people to be able to listen to that. So mm-hmm. starting in chapter 13, he, is, he leaves the temples, leaves the temple. One of his disciples admires the temple because the temple was beautiful. Um, and he's like, you know, do you, you know, wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And then Jesus said, oh, so you see these great, do you see these great buildings? There's not going to be one, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This temple is going to be destroyed completely. Um, hmm. And there's a lot of different points of eschatology. There are some views that say that this was uh, referring to something that happened in the past uh, to a different temple, that it was recalling that event. It's not really what I think, but I don't, Mm-mm. you know, we could spend weeks teaching eschatology just to get to the point where we could comment on one verse. <laughs> um, but I think that the more common understandings, certainly between you and I and others in our church, uh is that we feel like this was talking about that temple, which was the temple mm-hmm. that Herod built, which was big and beautiful, and how it was going to be destroyed. And that happened uh, right around AD 70 when the Romans came in and destroyed it. Mm-hmm. So, so Jesus is predicting that. 
totally. And what helps with that is it's, you know, you, you got to break your brain of the tendency to just read the chapter as though that it's written without a greater context. I mean, if you remember chapter 12 and chapter 11 before this, you know, he's been taught, you know, the cursing of the fig tree that was really beautiful on the outside, but inside had no fruit. I mean, he was talking about the temple. And he goes in and he cleanses the temple and he drives him out and he says, you've turned it into a den of robbers. And in the last chapter, he told the parable about the workers of the vineyard, the tenants in the vineyard who are killing all the messengers, well, the vineyard being Israel and specifically the temple being kind of the centerpiece of Israel. You know, the, the tenants are killing all of the messengers that are being sent to collect and then they even kill the son. And what does Jesus say? What will what will the king do? What will the landowner do? He's going to send an army to punish those people and to basically kill them and destroy them. And so it's in that context. That's just the previous chapters. Now Jesus is saying, okay, this is going to all be torn down. And so the context is clearly pointing, unless Jesus is changing the focus that has been there for chapters and prior to this, you know, these clearly talking about the temple that they're looking at, which will be destroyed, as you said, in 70 AD by the Romans. Yeah. So, then they move to the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. That, by the way, is why uh, Mark chapter 13 is part of what's called the Olivet Discourse, because mm-hmm. Jesus is teaching them from the Mount of Olives. Um, it's not it's not it's not any more deeper meaning than that. What is the Olivet Discourse? Is when Jesus taught from the Mount of Olives. Um, but the disciples, in a group of them, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they come privately and say, Okay, when is this gonna be and how can we know it's about to happen? At which point Jesus begins to say to them, he responds with an imperative. He says, see that no one leads you astray. That's the first thing he says. And I went through the chapter and looked at the rest of them. That is the first of 19 imperatives that Jesus offers to them. Be on your guard. Hmm. Stay awake. Jesus is very concerned that they be awake and aware of what's going on. Hmm. And then he does begin to describe some of the things that need to happen before this destruction of the temple happens. And and yet as he describes them and he's talking about them, I feel like some of these things are actually things that are going to happen after the temple is destroyed. So I sort of feel like some of these things have a fulfillment both in the destruction of the temple, but then also in the future. Um, how do you feel about that idea of the multiple fulfillments? I, I think it when you when you look at it, it starts to become obvious to me that that's exactly what's happening. Um, when and I'll explain what I mean because because what we're saying is Jesus is about to give a whole bunch of conditions that you're to watch out for, and he'll say you know there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and all these natural disasters, and it's like okay is that so that's supposed to happen before 70 A.D. or is that supposed to happen before he comes back in the final judgment you know with the second coming. And I think the answer is yes. Yeah. And I'll, ex- I'll explain why I mean that. If, if you go back and you look at the way that God always unfolds judgments in the Bible, he, he does so in a way that it's basically the same story that just keeps – the same conditions that keep happening again and again and again. And I'll, ex- I'll explain it. So, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna. This is gonna be pretty detailed, but you'll see that God, the same, different judgments have the same pattern that's laid out every time they happen. And so, I'm gonna walk through five of them. Okay, the first of these elements of the destruction narratives is that God always sends two messengers in advance of a judgment. And the idea is, you know, you need two people to establish testimony. You need two people that can can say, "Hey, you're wicked. You need to turn," right? That's the, kind of the idea. And so, think back to Sodom. You had the Lord sent two angels into the city of Sodom before judgment. If you think of the story of the Exodus before the plagues and all the judgments of God fall on Egypt, he sends Moses and Aaron into Egypt. 
you think Jericho and you get the two spies that go into the land. If you think of the destruction of the temple, you had the admonitions of both John the Baptist and Jesus that come before the destruction of the temple. And if you think in the final destruction, in the final judgment, uh, the apocalypse, the Lord will send two witnesses into the whorish city of Babylon. And so, think of this. This is always telescopic. There's always these two people that come with a a judgment. The next condition is God always spares a remnant. And every one of these things, in Sodom, it's everyone behind Lot's door is going to be spared, right? Everyone in Lot's door is going to be spared. Everyone outside of that door is judged. In Egypt, everyone who is behind the door that's marked with blood is spared and rescued. Everybody outside is going to face the judgment. And Jericho, everybody behind the door that has the window with the scarlet thread hanging out is going to be spared. That's God's elect remnant. And everyone outside is going to be judged in the battle of Jericho. This is saying that everybody who rejects the words of John the Baptist and Jesus, they're going to be judged. And in this passage, Jesus is calling upon his people to flee from that judgment. And in Babylon, you have the Lord who comes and calls his people out of Babylon before Babylon is destroyed. So there's refuge behind a door. God spares a remnant. He always sends two messengers. And in every single one of these stories, you also have somebody that you think is going to be a part of the saved group that says, oh my gosh, I can't leave the wicked city. I want my riches and wealth and everything else. And so you go back to the beginning of Sodom and what happens? Lot's wife just can't leave Sodom. She loves her life there too much. She had all the wealth and she turns back and she's going to be judged. You think of of Egypt when they're called out of Egypt. You have all of the people grumbling saying, oh, we wish that we were still in Egypt with pots of meat and they're going to die in the wilderness. You think of Jericho and you have... um, Oh, what's his name? Achan, who is, you know, stealing from the city after God told him not to. He wants the treasures more than he wants God, and he's judged. You think the people of Jerusalem that treasure all of their external riches and temples and gold of the temple rather than the God of the temple, they're going to be judged. And in the end, Babylon, when, when, in Revelation 18, when it's talking about those who are mourning, at the second coming, it's they can't take their eyes off of the wicked city. They're mourning over her. They're they're losing all their wealth. And you know, here comes Christ. And what are they looking at? They're looking at the city rather than looking at Christ coming in His glory, because that's their true treasure. Treasure. And then finally, in every case, that it's going to be destroyed with with fire and judgment. So Sodom is destroyed and consumed. Egypt, the plagues are consuming them, including fire from coming from heaven. And Jericho, the city's destroyed and burned with fire. The temple is going to be torn down and destroyed with fire. Every stone torn down. And in the second coming, we're also told that the wicked city of Babylon will be consumed with fire. And so it's it's kind of like the same story. Every time God is pouring out a judgment, it's like the same exact details come along. He sends two messengers with a warning. He spares a remnant. The people behind the door are saved. There's a wicked group that can't quite leave the wealthy temptation and their eyes are on wealth rather than God. And then finally, the the wicked city is destroyed. And so when Jesus lays out these details in Mark 13, you know, part of it is, yeah, this is this definitely fits 70 AD, but, you know, it fits every judgment. You know, this, this keeps happening, and it's like birth pangs. When he describes it as birth pangs, what happens with birth pangs is, you know, it's, it's cramps, it, they, and they keep getting more and more intense as you get to the final deliverance, and they get closer and closer together. But the, the cramp is very similar in style. It's just increasing in intensity. And that's how I see when when Jesus is giving warnings of what the judgment for the temple is going to look like, you can pick that up and lay it down over the final judgment because all of these things are telescopically similar. You could overlay them on top of one another and they keep following the same pattern. Hmm. At least that's my theory. Um. It was. It's my theory, also, except I don't have as much detail to back it up. So there, I, I, <laughs> I'm like, it, I think it was the temple being destroyed in eighty seventy because 
the uh, temple was destroyed in eighty seventy. Um, but <laughs> but the other Which thing. Is- much better explanation, simpler, <laughs> short. All right. All right. Everybody's well, like, why didn't you just say that? Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing is that as he talks about these different signs, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. This is going to happen. Then he also says things like, um, you know, we're going to have nations rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines. Oh, but, but these are about the beginning. Oh, boy. Uh, of it. <laughs> and then they talk about, we're going to be, you know, we, that is, believers, followers of Jesus, people of God, are going to be handed over to government authorities, will be beaten, stand before the governors and kings to bear witness. And our focus in that time should be on the gospel. They're going to beat us. We can't stop them. So... Do something that's worthy of the beating. Proclaim the gospel. You know, proclaim the truth of his salvation. Um, but then it gets even worse. It's like, okay, your brother will turn you in to be killed. Your father will turn you in to be killed. Your children will turn you in to be killed. Well, these are all things that happened to the early people in the early church um, and most of them happened you know probably right around the time of 8070 but a lot happened after that too you know and as we watched our history unfold in front of us now and we see how diminished the church has become uh, around the world and we hear the stories of our brothers and sisters in Countries like Iran and Iraq and um, these Muslim countries, Middle Eastern countries over there, where they're taking a stand for God and giving their lives for it. Like, well, does it mean does it mean the stuff that was happening at eighty seventy, the stuff happening after that, or the people that were getting that are getting killed now in modern day countries around the world? And my answer to that is yes, yes, and yes. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one of the things that frustrates people about eschatology is that we do we, we talk about things this way. We're like, there's multiple fulfillments of these. It doesn't just refer to this one time that it happened. It refers to all the times that it's happened. Mm-hmm. And there are other forms of end-time study in which they figured the whole thing out. They have put everything in its slot, in its box, They've given everything its spot in time. They are more than willing to tell you about everything that's going to happen with (laughs) precise attention to detail because that's what that particular view does. They have never met a time period that they didn't want to chop up. It's like they're Mm -hmm. just, you know, (laughs) that's their thing. And, and I think when he says all these are but the beginning of the birth pains, it's to invite you to realize, well, what, what do birth pains look like? You know, he says they're but the beginning, which means everything that you've just experienced, the wars, the rumors of wars, the nations rising against nations, the famines, the earthquakes, all that's described as just the beginning of birth pains, which means what? They're going to continue and they're going to echo what initially happened, but increase in intensity. Yeah. And so it's... Everything that just happened is going to happen again, and it's going to happen again, and it's going to happen again with greater intensity until it finally comes to where, when it describes, you know, creation as being laboring, right? To, to all of creation is groaning and labor to give birth to something new. You know, well, what is all this? These are the labor pains, and it's you could just lay them on top of one another. The destruction of the temple is going to be one of them. Um, and when you see the final one, I imagine that's going to be the most intense of all the labor pains. Yeah. Um, when Christ finally comes and new birth, the birth of a new creation is brought forth, that is going to be the last one. Yeah. Well, I um, a little bit later on in this chapter, there's something here that talks about uh, this. there's a sort of tension going on that something's ready to snap. You know, there's a thing that could happen at any time. And I pointed out that um, there's there's a word most people probably haven't heard. I tend to use it because I heard it and I kind of like how it sounds. But the word is perusia, mm-hmm. which refers to the second coming of Christ. 
And, you know, one of the things that I've learned by looking at this is that there's a very real sense in which the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the perusia are really one divine event. That, that it is all one act, complete act of Jesus. It's like this is the saving. You know, it's all the saving. However, the mercy of God continues to hold the perusia away from the ascension. Jesus has returned to heaven, and God is holding back the perusia. And he's got his reasons for it. And we actually, I, I think that's it, it's important to understand mm-hmm. what his reasons are. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, but I also think that we need to recognize that we have been in, ever since the incarnation, really, humankind has been living in the last days. Everybody's asking, when are the last days? And the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I you know, agree. We've been living in the last days since Jesus came to earth. Yeah. Um, now, we're, it's like, which contraction are you in? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're in labor pains. Yeah. And God has kept us away from that final conclusion of it, you know, because of mercy. And again, mm-hmm. we'll talk to that when we get into it more. But And I, you kind of see it. it. It really does kind of mimic labor pains. You look at society, civilization, all of history, and there's ebbs and flows. There's times, I can promise you. Every century, there are people that look at the scriptures and go, oh my goodness, all of it's being fulfilled. Jesus is coming back at any moment. You know, if you went in the first century, there were times when there was famine and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and everything else. And as it goes, the the one thing that's interesting is it says that the gospel will be preached in all nations. And we're getting really close to the fulfillment of, of that. Um, you know, and that's the one that's building out more so. But every generation is facing... You know, contractions that are really wicked and really hard. Um, and there have been every people of every century who've thought this has to be it. And you know what? We're meant to think that. We're to always be on guard. We're always to keep look. We're always to be expectant. That's not to say it's foolish. You know, you can't be certain, but you're always to be on guard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, I think, is... Um, why he chose the idea of birth pangs for it. Because the birth pangs describe that sort of cyclical process that eventually ends, but kind of moves at its own pace. And, you know, each set of contractions is pretty much the same as other sets of contractions, and yet, at the same time, feel completely unique. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so anyway. There's, there's and, and the other, and Luke... And Matthew. So, if you go to Luke twenty-one, you, it's the the passage that's kind of the echo of Mark thirteen. He Luke adds something that I think is kind of funny, but it's it's just the way Jesus wants you to see and to feel when you're walking through the birth pangs and all this stuff. Because he's, it's the same thing there. If you go to verse ten of Luke twenty-one, he says, "Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom." He goes into the earthquakes and famines and pestilences and terrors and great signs of heaven, and he talks about the kings and governors bringing you before them. And then he goes on, and I just love this because it's it's funny to me. He says, "You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers." That's not the funny part. And relatives and friends, and some of you, they will put to death. And then listen to what he says in the next two verses. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. And you think, like, did did Luke, like, forget what he just wrote? Because he's saying, <laughs> you're going to be handed over. Some of you are going to die. You're going to face earthquakes and famines and all of these terrible things. And some of you are going to die, but not a hair of your head will perish. What is that? Yeah. That means that no matter what suffering you go through, no, even if they kill you, not one head, not one hair of your head will perish. The Lord has your life. He is not going to let you be extinguished even by death or persecution itself. So he's calling you to this radical confidence in his ability to raise the dead and his ability to protect and deliver even in the face of intense persecution, no matter what happens to you, not a hair of your head will perish. And I've just, I love that. It's, it's, it's comedic, but it's, 
it's confidence inspiring. Yeah, even if they kill me, they can't hurt me. Um, and Jesus wants us to walk in that kind of a confidence in the fact that he has us in his hand, yeah. no matter what may come. Yeah. So after this, after this discussion of the signs of the end of the age, then we encounter something called the abomination of desolation, which you have to say it just that way, people. Um, the abomination <laughs> of desolation. Uh, Feels like well, a Marvel character. It does, doesn't it? It was first mentioned in the book of Daniel. It was not called the abomination of desolation then. Back then it was called the abomination that brings desolation, causes desolation, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of stuff. But later it got incorporated into a title. The, you know, again, who this is and when they show up is based on your eschatology. Um, But what we can agree on, I think, is this. This is a person or persons who seek to do harm to the church, and they seek to do it from within by deceiving the church. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as part of that, they're going to come and they're going to stand in the place where it says he ought not to be, which refers to standing in a place of, of, you know, a holy place, a place of power. Um, they're going to come in and say, no, 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 I'm not evil. I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. I've come back for you. I'm Jesus. And they're going to do signs and wonders that will deceive people. However, they're not Jesus, and these are just signs that are designed to deceive them. Mm-hmm. And it's going to create a bad situation for things. Um, you know, it says that in those days there's going to be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. That's pretty bad tribulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it says that for the sake of the elect, the Lord cuts short those days. So even in the midst of all of this tribulation, um, even in the midst of what the of what this rogue is doing in the church, uh, among, you know, in, inside of the church, um, God is still in touch with that. He's still there to say, "Okay, that's enough. Can't do any of this. Can't do anything more right now." Mm-hmm. Um, I read that, and it sort of gives me a comfort that God is aware of everything that's going on with us in this time, and He takes action to preserve our lives. Agree. To- completely, completely agree. And you notice. You know, there's so many that have the view of eschatology as though we will not be forced to suffer during any of these birth pangs. And that's just not the case. You know, for the sake of the elect, he may shorten those days or he will shorten those days. He will show mercy, but it's in the midst of tribulation. And so you you do get the sense that there is suffering. We are going to be partakers of the sufferings of Christ. We are going to be conformed into his image, which means suffering before glory. And, you know, there's there's a lot to this, but at the end of the day, God remains merciful and he remains on his throne and ultimately he will not allow you to be eternally harmed. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, verse 20, it's pretty plain, if the Lord had not cut short these days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake, mm. for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So, because of us, the elect, God shortened the days, which benefited not only us, but everybody else that was there and alive at the time. Uh, so, you could, tell, you could tell us thank you later. Um, <laughs> but it is. I mean, it's, it is one of those things that when you, you know, when you look at it, there's no way I can find to look at that that says believers get a, you know, get out of tribulation free card somehow. They just don't. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work here. It doesn't work in Revelation. Yeah, I've always, I've never understood that. You know, he talks about us suffering. And one of the things that I think is particularly interesting, you know, and Jesus lived in a culture that didn't, the, where the church really didn't see itself as the sick one. It was, you know, those Gentiles. It was the outside world. And what Jesus says is that the greatest cancer, the greatest problem is going to come from within, like you mentioned. And one of the illustrations that I love that that kind of points this out is if you wanted to destroy 
a nation's currency. You don't round up all that's valuable and try to destroy it. What you do is you flood it with counterfeit. Because right. if I if I flood the church with a whole lot of counterfeit Christians, then no one can distinguish what it means to be a true Christian, what it means to really follow the gospel. And so that's the danger of false teachings, as you'll have people out there who claim to be teaching in the name of Christ, who chose so totally pervert the gospel that no one knows what the gospel of Christ is. Whereas, you know, a remnant that is absolutely faithful and preaching a 100% pure doctrine is more powerful than a large church that has totally lost what the gospel even means because it's filled with counterfeits and people who don't understand grace, don't understand mercy, they use it for political leverage or whatever else the case might be where it's been corrupted and, and diluted with all the false teachings or things that you know become idolatrous inside the church. That is what will harm the church more than all the Gentile forces and corruptions that are outside the walls ever could. The greatest, and that's why, like, when you see me get really worked up, it's corruption inside. I, when I read about, you know, pastors falling or people, you know, lifting up false teachings or falling away, that stuff grieves my spirit and i know it does yours too far more than the goofballs in washington dc um it it grieves me to see the church flounder or lose its its devotion and its its allegiance to the spirit of the gospel i i hate when i see that yep it is one of the most difficult things because you look at it and you say, these people are doing this while claiming the name of Christ. And I'm like, that's so hard to mm-hmm. to watch and to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is. But unfortunately, it's not uncommon. Yeah, I mean, and, and you look at this passage and what is it? Ba- basically what Jesus is, is saying is it's going to be people who mislead and they mislead trying to sell you something that you really want to hear. You know, you're you're not going to have to suffer, or you can be wealthy, or you know, you should never have to suffer, or whatever the case might be. You know, God agrees with all of your political philosophy, and you don't have to change a thing. Anytime you have somebody who comes and preaches or teaches you, and it doesn't force you to stretch, they're not presenting the real God to you because the real God doesn't conform to your desires. The real God calls you to conform to His. And if you don't feel, if you don't feel a sense of stretching when you're being called to surrender your life to God, then you are essentially around a preacher who is preaching a God who is made in your image. Sure. Um, and it's not the true God. Yeah. Yep. So the uh, this little passage ends with Jesus saying once again, and be on guard. <laughs> I have told you all things beforehand. So he is very concerned through this entire thing that we not be deceived or taken by surprise. He wants us to know these things are coming. He's a little not specific on the day and time because we shouldn't be going, well, this isn't a thing. It's not time for it yet. You know, we Mm -hmm. should be ready anytime this is coming. Um, After this, he moves into a discussion now of the signs of his return, the coming mm-hmm. of the Son of Man. Now, he's talked about the you know bad things happening to you with persecution from outside, bad things mm-hmm. happening to you with deceivers from inside, and now mm-hmm. he comes to this and, and he says, basically, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. I think that it's interesting. And then he says, and then the Son of Man. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. I Mm. think that what's so great about this is that all of the other signs and wonders and whatever, all these other signs of tribulation, signs of the deceiver, they're all earthbound. Mm -hmm. They're all here, signs here. And they're all kind of sketchy. Like, we could know it, but we might miss it. When a nation mm-hmm. rises up against a nation, what does that mean? 
Does that that's mean, been happening forever. Yeah, that's been <laughs> happening as far as we could tell. But in this, there's not going to be any, any question. These mm-hmm. are celestial signs. The heavens are falling apart, basically, mm-hmm. because <laughs> the God of creation is coming back. Yeah, you're not going to confuse this one. <laughs> you're not going to be like, hmm, I see the sun going dark and the moon. Yeah, you're not going to be like, is this it? You're going to know. Yeah. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Like, there is no denying this. Yeah. And what is going on, and this is something you know that, that the ancients really understood, is the temple was, when the temple was created, it was meant to be a representation of what the entire earth was supposed to be. The Garden of Eden was essentially the temple of God, and it was supposed to spread and take over the whole earth, and it was supposed to be brought under his dominion. And so when they built the temple, the temple was kind of a a point on the earth that represented the cosmic temple of God, which is the entire universe, right? And so, at the beginning of Mark chapter 13, you're hearing about the te- Herod's temple in Jerusalem sure. that is going to be torn down because a new temple has come, namely Jesus, right. and he's going to make you into his temple. But now, when you get to Matthew 24, and he's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens and everything in earth being shaken and the heavens being shaken, now what he's doing is he's he is tearing down the cosmic temple, which is going to be rebuilt. When you get to Revelations, and you, you hear the Apostle John recording the words of Jesus, and he's bringing forth a new heavens and a new earth. That's because the first heavens and the first earth had passed away. The first temple, in a sense, has been torn down. And so God is not just tearing down the temple that's in Jerusalem. That's going to happen in 70 AD. Check. That's that's off the list. But we are still waiting for the day when God is going to tear down this temple and make it new. Yeah. A new heavens and new earth. And that's what he's getting at. This is all about tearing down the former temples that are corrupt and rebuilding them to be perfect and with no corruption whatsoever. And when the Son of Man comes, it says that he's going to send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Hmm. So he's going to bring us all together. He's going to collect his elect. Um, And I just say there, like that makes it obvious that this part is definitely not talking about 70 AD because the elect is not hasn't gone to the ends of the earth That's yet. correct. And, and that is the answer to my question before, which is, why is the mercy of God holding back the perusia? And the mm. answer to that is so that people have a chance to repent and find salvation and, and his elect you know, can, can be brought into the kingdom. He's doing it because he wants these elect. He's chosen them. And when the last one comes, then the mercy of God will hold it apart no longer, Mm -hmm. um, and it will end. But it won't end until God has has all his elect. Yeah, from every nation and tribe and tongue. Yep. Um, So at any rate, uh, so he's he's told us this, that the way I put it in the study notes was I said, you know, the pretenders are going to have their parlor tricks, but Jesus is going to have the heavens. It's like for at the sign level. Um, but then Jesus does another interesting thing. He talks about the fig tree. He says that from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. There are some people there out there who when they take they see the fig tree mentioned in any passage they say well this is Israel and in many cases it is but a fig tree does not have to be Israel sometimes a fig is just a fig (laughs) Um, and in this case what Jesus is doing is most trees in Palestine are evergreen they don't drop their leaves Um, but the fig tree is different it drops its leaves every fall they come back in the spring and they mean that summer will soon be here. So the idea is that the local people would understand when we see the live, when we see the, the leaves on the branches of the fig tree, we know that a new season is here, that, that something's going to happen very soon. 
And that is what Jesus wants them to know, to look for the side of, of when the fig tree puts out its leaves, then we know that he is near at the very gates. And does that mean that his prophecy has anything to do specifically with fig trees? I don't think so. I'm not, I'm not sure the Lord is talking about literally when the fig tree gets its leaves, I'll be back. Like, because the fig trees have gotten their leaves every year since Jesus left. So if you're going to hold to that and say, no, it has to be the fig tree, and they do, and the way they deal with that, of course, Sam, is they push it off to being Israel. And mm-hmm. they say that, you know, and this was really good until 1988, because they also got hung up on the idea of a generation must be 40 years. So you had, you know, the mm-hmm. fig tree started to show leaves again. That's when Israel became a nation in 1948 again. I'm like, but that wasn't because of God establishing them. The United Nations did that. So it wasn't the same <laughs> thing as before. But 40 years later was 1988, and I was in the Indy Fundy world at the time, and they were best. They were telling us basically, this is it, guys, 1988, we're out of here. And in fact, back it up seven years, because you got to have a rapture, we're out of here in 1981. I'm here to tell you I was alive on the earth in 1981, and 1988, it's 2022, I'm still here. <laughs> None of those guys who said, we're going, have gone anywhere. They're still here, too. So, yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what, what he's saying is very clear. It's, it's, he's just laid out what the fig leaves look like. You know, He says, when the fig leaves start coming, know that summer is near, because those are the signs that summer's coming. Well, everything that he's just talked about are kind of equating to the fig leaves, Leading up into, you know, different parts of these birth pangs, whether it's the second coming or the destruction of Israel, like you should know the signs. And when you see them, be prepared. You know, in the case of 70 AD, he tells them, flee from Judea, go to the mountains because I'm going to protect you there and people inside Jerusalem won't survive. And he's telling them, be on the lookout, trust my prophetic word. And when you see things coming to pass, be ready. Be ready, be on guard. Um, and and he, when he says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, like what he's saying is th- these prophecies, the destruction of Jerusalem being that 40 years or whatever, the generation, this stuff is going to happen in your lifetime. And then he adds, here comes the next temple language, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. And so that's he's not changing the subject. What he's saying is, you know, that temple's going to go away that you're looking at, Herod's temple. That's going to be destroyed. And you can count on my words being true. Then he's saying, heaven and earth itself is going to pass away. Trust my word. When you see Herod's temple fall, know my word came to pass. And as he could say to us, Heaven and earth are going to pass away. Trust my word. Yeah. It will not pass away. Yeah. And then, of course, we have my favorite conclusion to any kind of discussion like this, where people have said, okay, I've got it mapped out. Fig trees Israel, starting in 1948, a generation, 40 years, 1988, back up seven. That's what we got to do, sell our house in 1981. <laughs> um, you come down to the last paragraph the last thought here and jesus says but concerning that day or that hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son i don't know but only the father so what are you supposed to do with that the answer is (laughs) be on guard keep awake for you do not know when the time will come for all of you who have sat down and read things like mark chapter 13 sharpened your pencil did some math figured out you knew what was going on here, and when the second coming was going to happen, I've got news for you, and I'm very sorry, but it was all in vain. Jesus didn't know, and he's telling you, you can't know. That's hard. That's that's like strong. That's like, okay, Mm -hmm. so I can't know. So what's the answer? Be on guard. Keep awake. You know, be ready for it when it comes. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not in vain. If you're on guard and you're keeping awake and death takes you before the second coming does, 
it's not like that's been in vain. You should always be on guard because the world is always broken and it's always fallen. And you should always, you know, have a, an intensity to keep your mind fixed on the gospel, yeah. no matter where you are yeah. in the labor. Yeah. Um, you know, he says further, he says, it's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I, stay, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's really, to me, if somebody says, what's the message of Mark 13? My answer mm-hmm. is, stay awake. <laughs> he, he, he seems kind of in, insistent on that. Yeah. <laughs> stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, I mean, stay how awake. many times does he say it here in this last little paragraph here? Be on guard. Keep awake. You don't know. Um, stay awake. Stay awake. You don't know. And mm-hmm. stay awake. It's like he's like, <laughs> really, seriously, stay awake. You know? That kind of thing. Um, and I think that that's important. Um, but the other thing that I like about this, honestly, is that when you were caught up in that strange chain of thought that had you deciding exactly when things were going to be over and when the church would be taken out and different end time things would begin, um, it kind of gave you an excuse to take your foot off the gas, you know? Mm-hmm. And this doesn't. Jesus is saying, stay awake until I come. Mm-hmm. And so that's my answer. My answer is keep talking about the cross, keep preaching the gospel, keep preaching salvation, keep doing what you've told me to do. It's it's not a time for slackers. It's a time to do what you've told me to do and stay awake. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you get to uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he's in Matthew twenty four is where you find this particular discourse, and there's some things that Matthew records that Mark omits. And the one thing that Jesus says in this whole passage where I feel like, gosh, that feels like today, is in verse 11 and 12, he says, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And, you know, this is after he said, you know, nation rising against nation and the famines and the earthquakes and all that stuff. And I don't want those to happen. But then he says something that bothers me even more than the famines and the earthquakes. He says, and because... Of these false prophets leading many astray, lawlessness will be increased, and the love of many will grow cold. And that's the most haunting part of all of the descriptions that he offers that come in these waves of birth pangs, um, is this idea that inside the church, you know, because it's false prophets arising inside the church, that lawlessness, nobody believes anything anymore. You know, they, they abandon the truths of God. It's just a free for all. And that's just a symptom, by the way, because I can look at that and go, yep, look at that. That just happened and that just happened and this pastor did that. And you can see the way that the church is a mess oftentimes. But when he says the love of many will grow cold, that is the one that haunts me. I, I hate that idea. And you can kind of sense it. It makes me immediately think of, of, social media and comment sections and articles and the way that the church often engages the world, the way that I want to engage the world a lot of times. And I think, man, has my love grown cold? Do I look at my ideological enemies or the Gentiles or you know those that are outside the walls of the church or inside the church who disagree with me? Does my heart kind of grow callous and cold toward them to where I'm like, you're the problem. You make me angry. I see all your lawlessness that's starting to corrupt society and threaten my kids and everything else, and I really can't. And I think the love of many will grow cold. You know, Jesus lived at a time where he came on a mission to love. He came to serve. He came to pour himself out. And he was met by the religious whose love had grown ice cold. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem longing for them to soften, longing that they would come to him, but they would not. And, you know, you see in an era today where lawlessness is increased and you see kind of the church 
convulsing or failing and, and lifting up the truth and grace and everything else. And it's tempting to allow the love of inside you to grow cold. And this is where it's all the more powerful to think, no, 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 what did my Savior do? He set his face toward people that were wicked and cold and lawless and hypocritical, and he loved them. And he gave his life for people like us. Mm -hmm. And what makes us different is when we think of the love of many growing cold, that should haunt us, and we should dig in and, like Jesus says, stay awake. Do not allow that to happen. Be on guard, not just on guard of the circumstances around you. Be on guard even more so of the condition of the heart within you. Be on guard. Do not let your love grow cold. And then he promises the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that's why we got to keep watch because it's really easy, really easy to allow your love to grow cold. That's the most haunting line in this whole sermon that Jesus gives to me. I hate that line. Yeah. Don't want it to be true. And I feel it in this world today. Oh. Well, that is a good word. Stay awake, be on your guard. And it's one we're going to have to end on. Um, at least that's what the clock on the wall tells me. Uh, folks, we hope you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you. If you'd like to correspond with Sam and I, you could do so. The email address to reach us both is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com. That's also where you can find all the back issues of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app available for both iOS and Android. Sam will return next week with another in this series from the Gospel of Mark, and we can once again play Where's Wally or Where's Mark's Voice, something like that case. <laughs> uh, we do look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. <laughs>